This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm welcome 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 that's how many Heads I see in this room to green the apocalypse, uh, your weekly look into the future and ways to avoid it. Uh, I'm Adam Grubb in the studio with me, Jed McCartney. How do you do? I'm well, thanks, Adam. Excellent. Got, got another new eye, so yeah. I can see everyone really well. Yeah, it's not cybernetic or anything. No, no, no. But it's, it's just been cataract. lasered or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're new and improved. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and we also have. Um, uh, Peter Christensen joining us as a co-host for the first time in a long time. But a welcome long back, time. thank Peter. you. It's it's lovely awesome. to be here as always. Yeah, so I should ref- we should refresh listeners about your background because you're involved in cultivating community, which is a pro- well, it's a long-standing. We are. Yeah, we're an NGO. We're based in Richmond, um, but we've got uh, community garden projects on public housing estates all over Melbourne. Mm. We've got school gardens and lots of other kind of community food stuff. So, you know, meals and after school cooking and food swaps and all sorts. Yeah. We should talk about the themes for this evening and who we have in studio. We have a return guest, Dr. Chris Williams from Burnley, from the Urban Horticulture course. Last time you were on, Chris, you talked about your novel crops project and your passion for urban food production, but specifically testing out things from the tropics and around the world and, and getting interesting crops into people's backyards and into small-scale urban agriculture. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Adam. Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to see your face. And with yeah. you is one of your students, current students, right? Um, yeah. I'm not sure if there's any kind of weird conflict of interest or like... Because you, you will be grading Charlotte in the I near will. future on she certain things. She can't claim this experience uh, as part of an assignment. No. Okay. <laughs> is, is now when you negotiate that assignment, it's not quite... <laughs> Don't do that, please. <laughs> so, so Charlotte, I know your, your middle name. I think it's something to do with your email, Melbourne Uni email address, but uh, Daisy... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I love that. It seems relevant. Yeah, like you're a grub. You're grub. That yeah, seems yeah. relevant to My middle name is Taboo, though. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you're not getting it. I need uh, intel on that one for sure. Uh, uh, Charlotte Daisy Bartlett Wine, welcome uh, to Greening the Apocalypse. Thanks so, for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful. So you're, what's the course or the, the – um, what are you studying with, Chris? Um, well, I'm doing the associate degree in urban horticulture and yeah. the unit with Chris is a sustainable focused unit. What's uh-huh. the name of it again, Chris? We really need to talk about this. No. Uh, horticulture for sustainable communities. It's, it's a really great unit. Oh, thank you. <laughs> cool. And together with uh, a couple of your friends, uh, it's Pat Turnbull and Kirsty Edwards, you've 
started a not-for-profit farm raiser. Do you want to? Well, that's the name of the project. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Charlotte? Yeah, farm raiser. Um, it's very exciting for us. We've only just launched it recently, and it's a not-for-profit that's going to use. We're going to turn um, vacant school land, land in schools that they don't have any money or or use for, into um, mm. self-sustaining market gardens. Yeah, and with the idea that the market garden will. Um, I mean, it will give fresh veggies to the local community, it will sell them and it will fundraise for the school and it will provide a good learning environment for kids to kind of interact with the food systems more and I guess make people value agriculture and food and where it comes from more. Mm-hmm. In an urban setting, so yeah, it should yeah. be good. Yeah, awesome. So you're not. St- it's at first. I was like, oh, you're going to use school land to grow veggies, but you're not really taking it from them. No, no, it's it's, it's land- integrated with the yeah with the classes and things is the idea. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a resource that the school can use. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's it's taking land that doesn't have a use otherwise, just just grass most of the time. Uh huh. And what stage are you at with this project? Um, we're in the early stages right now. We're just kind of fundraising and getting um, getting the idea out there mm-hmm. and um, planning and scheming. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we plan on, if all goes to plan with that sort of part of it, we'll um, break ground and have a crop in next spring, which will be really exciting. Yeah, yeah. So you mean this, like, coming up, like in the next couple of months or next no, year? No, next okay. year. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 But you have been dabbling already at the... I understand at Burnley there's a market garden there which is large enough... But I mean, does it, do you think everybody knows what a market garden even means? Basically just means a, it it's, means you're growing vegetables rather than other things, rather basically. Rather than wheat and rice. I mean, I know you guys do. I was just <laughs> yeah. conscious that it seems it could be in a lingo. And it's usually um, for, like, sale, right? Yeah, you know, It's sale, not yeah. necessarily just for your own. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the difference because I feel like some people have said to us, oh, you're going to make a community garden. And I guess that is a point of difference that it's actually not going to be somewhere that people have their own plots. It's going to be mm-hmm. somewhere that a farmer cultivates and yeah. grows to sell. It's an enterprise. An enterprise, yeah. yeah. And I guess one of the other things is that there's not so many market gardens left around Melbourne anymore, whereas we used to have a lot of market gardens. Mm. Um, but we're seeing a resurgence of young farmers like you, which is really exciting. And, you know, there's a couple of, of projects now. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really – yeah, there's a lot of people getting really excited about it. Which yeah. Is cool. But the uh, Burnley Market Garden you're talking about, mm. um, Adam, which Charlotte can talk to more, is is in our historic field station. So, you know, the Burnley campus, which is really in Richmond, goes back to the 1850s. Well, the gardens do. And then the college was set up to teach horticulture from 1891. And there's a field station that had the first experimental fruit tree plantings for the whole colony of Victoria, as it then was. And there's more or less an unbroken tradition of students learning to grow food there yeah. since the 1890s, including um, very early enrolments of women. That was quite quite innovative for the world at that time. And, you know, Charlotte and Pat and Kirsty are, are uh, part of that tradition and, you know, they, they did my food plot program where they had to grow crops individually, but they've now, with some other students, decided to use some of that land down there to grow crops and... Um, and I was involved with helping them sell the first batch of veggies at the Melbourne Farmers Market two Sundays ago and we nearly froze to death. Uh-huh. Um, so that's really exciting, but I think that's giving, giving them a lot of confidence to, to do this farm raiser project. Hmm. And you actually have a school already lined up, I think, right? At, uh, I mean, you, you, it's not just theoretical. There's an actual yeah. site, right? Yeah, yeah we yeah. do. We have um, what it's called Waratah Special Development School. It's in Belfield. 
and the principal there, Jenny, and the whole school are really, they're really keen on the idea and they're, um, they're very willing. They're working with us to, to make it happen, so that's really cool. Okay. And sometimes so, that's one of the hard things is finding land. You know, you might have the inspiration to be a farmer, right, in the city, but one of the hard things can be to find land to do that. Yeah, totally, and be able yeah. to buy it or rent it or yeah. have the security. So this kind of solves that problem in, uh, in a way for us. And And win-win for the school too. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess the pressures on young market gardeners is trying to get land and also, like, I guess things like tax and that sort of thing. And so I guess for us, because we're going to start a charity, I mean, we're starting a charity, so we'll have some tax exemptions and we also won't have to pay for land. It'll make it much more, like, financially viable as a a fundraiser and as a self-sustaining model that could be applied to other schools as well, which would be really good for the future, I think. Mm It's a good trapped uh, market as well with the parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, so let's. Can we talk a little bit about Burnley and like? So it, you said it's got a rich history, and yeah. I, I've been there, and it's like a botanic gardens to walk around the grounds. But you said there was right at the beginning a focus on fruit trees, and I guess you know in the nineteenth mm. century there was a lot of acclimatization projects going Absolutely. on. Was it part of that? It, it certainly was. So the, I'd say about half the area of, of the campus is is these historic gardens that are, you know, in that kind of Gilf, William Guilfoyle Botanic Gardens model of lots of big trees, lots of Australian rainforest species, you know, various exotic things like camellias, all that stuff, and, and, and native plantings too. And then beyond the, the recently installed Narnia gates, as I call them, they, you have to see them to believe them, is this big old field station. Um, mm. And that's where largely right from the 1890s that students would learn to grow food and I, I guess learn the skills to become market gardeners, absolutely mm. grow commercial vegetable crops. Um, and so there's heritage-listed uh, fruit trees there, mm-hmm. which um, a- along with the flood overlay, because we're close to the Yarra, is probably one of the reasons it will never be um, sold off for apartments or, you know... Yeah, it's as, an incredible as, as land, corporate so. universities, yeah. you know, I want uh-huh. to do. Let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. Can Can anyone sort of wander in and have a look? I, That's I such ride a great down question, there yeah. every morning and ride sort of around it and back around it and around it and back around so it. So it is the the field station is close to the public. Mm-hmm. You have to have a key to the gates, Narnia gates, the Narnia gates. But the rest of it is open to the public for the whole year. Okay. So it is one of those hidden gems. Yeah. Um, mm. And sometimes if I'm working there on the weekend, someone will, who's jogging or walking around will, will say, this is the first time I've been here. Am I allowed to be here? And you say, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so like, if we think back to the 19th century, there yeah. were, like, famous naturalists like, uh, mm. well, Darwin and, you sure. know, and they all got knighted and things. And yeah. they'd go around the world uh, collecting species and there was this uh, very kind of, um, well, it, there, was, there was a lot of, at the time, and with good and bad re- uh, mm. results, there was a lot of movement of genetic material around Absolutely. the world and to the colonies yep. and uh, acclimatisation. And there was it was a high status kind of, and probably quite exciting mm. if you, you know, had elements of exploring and things that went with it. And did, I, I get the impression just thinking like, you know, some of that, uh, you know, the collecting of edible plant materials and, and acclimatising them and figuring out what works in the... Fairly tough Australian environment and often tough soils mm. would have been a fairly exciting process. Do you have any idea, like the the kind of people that were doing it and that were there in the early days well, of Burnley? Yeah, it was a huge, um, not just Burnley, obviously, but the, the whole kind of colonial enterprise was about that, and people loved it. 
You know, the the 19th century, the Victorian period, is absolutely horticulturally obsessed. Yeah. And and Melbourne is really interesting as a 19th century city because, of course, it was founded right at the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign and it sort of modelled on that boom time British Industrial Revolution provincial kind of thing and and so it was all classes of people from the elites to the working class were interested in growing stuff and I think... Um, it was a massive part of the culture, absolutely. So there was a principal at Burnley, Luffman, and he was the guy who um, really pioneered and pushed for the horticultural education to be relatively sophisticated for the for its time mm. and um, particularly interested in the education of women too. Mm. But, um, but so people were, yeah, they were. They were swapping plant material all the time. And, and it's a bit of an untold story. If you're into the botanic gardens, you'll, you'll know this, but that there was this real interest in even though people were clearing vegetation, dispossessing Aboriginal people, all the horrors, there was this actual fascination with the jungle at that time. So a lot of the evergreen vegetation in Melbourne reflects acclimatising Australian rainforest plants, which is really unusual. So that's why we have these giant figs, lily pillies, patosporum. You mean taking them from further north? Taking them from East Gippsland, but also further north as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But with some kind of romance about the <laughs> cultures and <laughs> landscapes that All were probably that being stuff. destroyed elsewhere. So mm. what I'm trying to yeah. get my head around, though, is how we went from this situation where horticulture was... I mean, it was really... F- economically significant yeah. to do all that stuff and it seems like there were probably high status um jo- jobs or 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 tasks that people mm. did doing that and yet somehow you know we got to the end of the 20th century pretty much and like there's just suburban lawns mm. in, in anglo culture sure um and and anything involving food production was considered a little at home, yeah, um, was considered you know a little bit backwards almost. Hide it in the backyard. Yeah, and the classic spot for the veggie patch in you know at least for my grandparents' generation mm. was like get it right in the furthest back corner so that peasanty sure. little embarrassing bit is you do it but you you don't make a big deal out of it and you've got the the lawn on display which is in many ways mm. it, I, I believe it comes from the English manor tradition of like sure. proving that you don't need to grow food that's a status there is a bit symbol of and so it sort of flips somewhere along the lines do you under, do you know yeah, what, yeah, yeah, how it is, happened um, well we usually attribute it to a sort of post-war 50s you know we pick on the 50s mentality that that's when it really ramped up yeah with suburbia um, with suburbia I mean because it didn't really exist. In the well, same way no, before it, that? It, well, just cars made it possible. Yeah, the big sprawl is post-war. Yeah, um, but if you look at the, it's the gardening food, food gardening has always been popular in suburban Australia, though. May, mm. Maybe pushed to the furthest reaches of the backyard. You're right, but if you look yeah. at old gardening guides like the old classic Yates Garden Guide, you know, a good third of that book, which has been in print since the 1890s, is devoted to growing crops. Yep. In my, my edition of the 1965 uh, Yates Garden got us frightening, though, because it talks about spraying DDT and, I mean, it, it, they move with the times of the particular industrial horrors yeah. as they went along. But um, but certainly that neatness culture um, yeah. was pretty powerful through the 50s and 60s. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. And then you get the kind of rebellion and the change of the native plants movement, which is particularly coming out of Sydney, is really around allowing mess to, to happen again, leaves to fall, twigs to be used as mulch. Yeah. Um, 
But I don't think that, I don't think even the you know you got the post-war migrants coming and really changing things. But it's hard for me because I come from a, a you know an Anglo background that was really into veggies anyway. So yeah. okay, it's you hard. talked about this yeah when you were on last time that you had was it grandparents that taught you and were, yeah my grandmother was from a farming background and yeah. all that stuff. But um, so that to me it's always been plant fruit trees yeah, grow yeah. the veggies yeah so yeah well, something happened there yeah we mm. we did go through that phase I can remember as a kid. Yeah, you know, down to the Gold Coast for holidays, and mm. everything was manicured. There was this, these lawns and these beautifully shaped gardens, but nothing in them was productive as as far as food went. It mm. was it was pretty to look at. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was. Well, de- I mean, and definitely some of the the post war uh, Mediterranean influx kept. Uh, well, you know, classically, it's very very neat, but with f- food production Absolutely. right in the front yard. And, uh, I, yeah, it's interesting how to, you know, in those cultures, I think having, you know, the best tomatoes is, is a, does have status. Yeah. And, we're, and Anglo cultures seem to be um, catching up to that again. Well, I'm seeing it in our street, though, where um, as the older Italians move out, the backyard that was pretty much all market garden, mm. and it was just all productive, is now becoming you know, the little thing in the corner. Yeah. And, and then there's other people who are moving back to the, the full production. You know, everything's a fruit tree, so everything mm. grows something. If you're going to put a tree there, you're going to mm. eat something off it. So mm. it's good to it see. There's more veggies in the front yard now and even on yeah. the verge. You know, there's lots of yeah. people just planting all available space, aren't yeah. they? And, you know, so I think we're kind of really moving back towards it being totally acceptable to have food growing everywhere. Yeah. I hope so. Right. Back, <laughs> back when we started Very Edible Gardens, which was 2009, we got on, I think it was Today Tonight or A Current Affair, mm. I can't remember, and the story was four young guys um, are doing a business growing vegetables in people's yards which is so boring the reporter was like what am i doing here um (laughs) but it it got there anyway and the idea of that happening now it seems ridiculous because it has become much more incorporated into culture it's not a story i'm joel salatin known as the lunatic farmer encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking compost loving cud chewing soil building water cleaning vanguard of urban hillbilly radio greening the apocalypse on radio 102.7 free triple r you are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR and in the studio we have Dr Chris Williams who is part of the Urban Horticulture course at the uh, Burnley campus of the University of Melbourne and Charlotte Bartlett-Wine who is one of the students there and is also behind the Farm Raiser project which is looking at putting market gardens into schools. Um, it's a not-for-profit. Well, let's yeah, maybe let's continue with a little the historical cultural things but do do you have ideas of where like how much food used to be grown in melbourne or its greater periphery and and where it was and and how that's changed over time between you yeah sure well where i know you've had rachel carey my colleague Mm. on the show before who's Mm. with food print melbourne uh, have done great work analyzing all this yeah so we're still actually quite self-sufficient in vegetables in, in fact yeah if you talk about Werribee. Werribee. Yeah. No, Werribee, Bacchus Marsh, okay. um, southeast suburbs to a degree still. Yep. It, Heatherton, there's some market gardens hanging in there, certainly in 
in uh, Dandenong, not the Dandenongs, but, you know, uh, uh-huh. heading down to the peninsula. But yeah. So historically, lots of Melbourne's vegetables were grown. Well, as the city grew, they were pushed further and further out, but the, the sand belt was a huge... You know, of the southeast suburbs was yep. very important because easy to dig soil exactly free draining soils yeah. as long as you had water to uh, to irrigate um, you were right and that's yeah. still very important to this day and, and grain you can move a lot further right so veggies especially pre refrigeration had to yeah. be like grown in or around the city probably maybe potatoes so I, I, yeah I don't get away with <laughs> yeah. further but well that's potatoes yeah. famously come from Cooey Rup. No, that's asparagus. Yeah, that's oh, asparagus. That's true, it's but about no, South Gippsland. It, it, yeah. it is potato bit, country too. Okay. Yeah. 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 On the, well, the, bit further. But, um, yeah, in the volcanic country of the... Yeah. It's true, probably. I don't, I, didn't really, I don't really know what I'm talking about with potatoes. <laughs> I just used to go through Kui Rup a lot. Um, <laughs> but, um, but in fact, uh, you know, but I, I know the market, some of the market gardens at Bacchus Marsh quite well. Former student who did the associate oh, yeah. degree is... Uh, um, Vietnamese Australian guy Alex Alex Newen uh-huh. his family are growing Asian veggies out there yep. and the, there's a few orchards left but I think it's something like only 25 to 30 small farms left in that area yeah. but, but talking about the 19th century again I, I think what's very different now is of course that governments used to invest heavily in this stuff hmm. it wasn't just go and find some land and start grow veggies. There was yeah. a level of support to build up irrigation, to provide information services to farmers. It's very different now where we're, we're losing that arable land. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that Rachel has really emphasised, that we do have an amazing food bowl and yet the planning controls on turning that land into suburbia aren't good at all. Yeah. And that is, yeah. it is actually scary. It is, yeah. And it's a great report, the yeah. one you mentioned, the Food Print Melbourne um, it's yeah, it's it's like we're not going to be able to produce all of Melbourne's food in the peri-urban centre, but there's a certain amount of resilience to be being able to maximise it, and that planners take note because uh, a lot of the issues that we talk about on this show, in, including climate change mm. and um, and probable energy prices going up, as you know, natural gas is um, the feedstock for a lot of fertilisers and. Just uh, if being reliant on international imports isn't a great long-term strategy. <laughs> That's, yeah. yeah, and I think it, it would be interesting to think about the kind of project that Charlotte and, uh, you know, Pat and Kirsty are looking at with Farm Raiser just over time, how that could help, um, well, increase the resilience of the city overall because you are talking about a lot of underutilised land if you really think about it in there's, the city. There's so much land. There's, that's one thing. The more urban farmers we talk to, the more they tell us, like, we're offered land that we can't, we don't have the means to farm. And I guess in the current, like, situation where a lot of young people can't afford to buy land, it's a pretty, like, big opportunity to be mm-hmm. able to take the land. Like, Melbourne Water has a lot of land. There's private mm-hmm. land, the education department. Like, there's land out there and it's still got good soil, good topsoil, mm-hmm. which is, a, I guess, yeah. really a you, finite resource. You've only got to walk along the Mary Creek track and look at all the land either side that you know you can never build on in case of the mm. flood but mm. you could certainly farm it it's yeah. good good farming land yeah yeah, yeah. Well, it was farmed for thousands of years right. as well yeah. so good yeah. point yeah. Well, i was at joe's market garden on the weekend which is the little patch in coburg managed by series these days and uh i think the history of that one goes back to gold rush mm. era it's um, Chinese market gardeners initially and then handed over. It's, it's like a whole history of... Because uh, I think, you know, a lot of market gardening in the early colonial days of Australia was 
uh, Chinese. Yeah. Um, they had the skills for high intensity um, productivity, and then it was handed over to I'm not sh- some Joe and his family. I think of Greek heritage. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I think the Maltese. Yeah. 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 Oh. yeah. Yeah. I volunteered there a little bit. Oh, great. Yeah, it's yeah. a great place. I think they're growing Marnock down there as well. Yeah, actually. they're about to. So they're getting indigenous heritage happening there as well. Yeah, but, so these little patches of high fertility, you know, in and around the city that are sometimes being paved over, that particular patch was threatened in the 80s when there was going to be a freeway built down the Mary Creek, but protesters um, stopped that from happening. At one stage, I think it's, it was owned by... It got forcibly acquired off Joe and his family for many years and it grew over with weeds, but at some point he's still at the tractor next door, so he just pulled the fence down and started farming. <laughs> yeah, he's, I think I he's continually a, farmed it, hasn't he, yeah, since, you yeah. know, um, when he was there, yeah, for over 50 years. Yeah. So, but, um, so Charlotte, you're, you also have a background as a chef. Um, what... You know, there's. I presume in the subject at Burnley, there's all sorts of aspects on horticulture. Not all of them edible related, but you've ended up with a, uh, interest in the edible side of things. What drew you to that? Um, I guess like just the appreciation of good produce and how uh-huh. much, like where you get your produce from and what it is changes the flavour of food that you eat and I think a lot of people maybe don't appreciate that or can't appreciate it especially if you live in an urban setting but I think once you've tasted the difference of like a homegrown tomato versus a Coles tomato you can't go back yeah and so I think that's partly what um what drew me to it also I think food is one of those things that connects people across cultures across pretty much any barrier because everyone has to eat and Mm. it's so linked to people's like background and their passion and I really appreciate that as like a, a nice way to kind of tie all my interests together, which mm. is like cooking, eating, I love to eat, and growing, and then, yeah, put them all together. Uh-huh. <laughs> and connecting, so, connecting with and people. Connecting and connecting with people. Oh, totally. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. So why the flip from chef into, I guess, professional horticulturist rather than just farmer. doing it in your backyard or, or farmer, yeah? I guess um, I guess I really wanted to be outside. <laughs> I think when you're a chef, you spend a lot of time inside and I was looking at all these produce and I was thinking about where it came from and but I just saw it at the end and I wanted to see it at the beginning. So I think that's... And I don't know, I guess it's, yeah, it's a bit more of a... Um, uh, maybe better lifestyle and more community thing than, than chefing is. Uh-huh. The growing of food. Yeah. What's, what's your reasons for being into this stuff, Chris? Yeah, self-medicating on nature and gardening for... A, <laughs> since childhood yeah yeah no um that is an it's an incredible part of it, it. Do, do you actually do any therapeutic stuff through cultivating community peter i mean I, we don't call it therapeutic but it mm. is therapeutic yeah, you yeah. know i think that just that thing of people getting their hands dirty and being able to grow food and being in the garden yeah um yeah absolutely yeah, mm. and you ha- and you work with people who are you know in uh, high pressure, high rise public yeah. housing. Yeah, and, uh, it's the- a total oasis being able to go into the community garden. And yeah. I remember asking someone recently, you know, do you go to do you come to this garden every day? And she said, Well, I come seven times a day. You know, I've only yeah. got a two meter by two meter plot, but I want to be here mm. all the time because it's it's a sort of mental health thing as well as just you know being with your plants. And yeah. so it's not necessarily about having to weed or tend to the garden. Uh-huh. Just it's just about being it. in it, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so for you, Chris, you'd be, you know, it helps you get through the day too. Well, it, no, it, honestly, <laughs> it's a complete privilege to teach horticulture yeah. and students are so into it. Uh, whether, they're, whether they're into 
designing residential gardens that have no edible aspect or, or uh, students like Charlotte who are really taking the, the food production side seriously. I absolutely love it. Um, and it was interesting because I, I do a master subject that's just about urban agriculture called Food Production for Urban Landscapes. There's a really interesting um, uh, Chinese guy in the Otways who grows mountain yams. He's on YouTube and... Um, Mr. Lettuce, he calls himself, Mr. Yang. Yeah. Really interesting character. Uh-huh. And I invited him out to... He's an aquaponics expert. Anyway, I invited him out to Burnley to... So ma- mountain yams, that they're like... Oh, sorry, mountain yams are really skinny, um, true yam, uh-huh. right? I won't bore everyone with the, the, the botany. Um, it's a cold climate yam. Uh-huh. Um, and there's actually a West Australian indigenous yam of the same genus, Dioscoria. Mm. I am here, I'm doing it now. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. But you eat the tuber. But you eat the tuber. And the point is it's one of those tatoey. classic Chinese vegetables that's food is medicine, medicine is food. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, so I started to grow it. That's why I invited him out to Burnley. And he made this really interesting comment when he, he came down to the plots that students like Charlotte have, you know, worked on in my subjects before and he said because he was watching masters level students actually digging and getting their hands dirty Mm. and he said this is extraordinary he said the whole tradition of liberal western university education is to get you out of the dirt right and he said now these people who are international students many of them as you could see were chinese are actually willingly voluntarily growing food he said something has definitely changed yeah, and I, I know I was really thought, wow, that's a really interesting insight. That yeah, other than perhaps on a horticultural campus, that makes sense. But certainly in a in a, I mean, postgrad students always say to me, "This is a miracle that we're allowed to do this." Yeah, not to just be stuck in the lecture theatre. Uh huh. So yeah, hopefully keep that tradition alive. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Three Triple R. We talked a little bit about how, you know, that horticulture was once this highly esteemed and extremely economically important part of Australia. And uh, I see and how I see you very much in that tradition at Burnley, Chris, of being mm. one of those people that still bringing in plants and, and acclimatising them. And uh, what a fine tradition it is. And Except for the cane toads and the rabbits. And the yeah, boxes. yes, there's been a few yeah. missteps. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and oh, then... Oops. But then we talked about how, oh, but then it sort of went out of favour and fashion. But then, Mm. Charlotte, you're part of a generation that is getting, you know, back into it. And uh, and one of the things that you're doing is uh, setting up your farm raiser projects and getting into market gardening. I've got one of the former guests of this show, uh, Paul Marigliotta from Dayswalk Farm, um, who whenever I catch up with him, he's which is rarely because he he's he does uh, market gardening. And he's a systematic, smart guy. He used to be a radiologist and other people I know that have had promising academic careers and things and, you know, I've gotten into market gardening. It's a quite a lifestyle switch. I think when I asked him how much he pays himself, it wasn't very much and he works pretty long hours and struggles with the seasons. And yet he's also bounces around like a... Um, yeah, like like a happy pixie through the fields and gets a lot of joy from it and is always thinking and planning and mucking around with cover crops and, you know, excitement in the eyes. But it's it's obviously, um, you know, something, uh, you know, that, that there's a lot of learning along the way. Where, where are you? You said you've, you've done a few trial crops down at the Burnley Market Gardens. How, how have things been going for you guys? Um, it's been a really um, good learning experience, I'd say. Um, I think we've learned more from what hasn't worked than yeah. from what has worked. 
uh, we had, yeah, we, we, we got this bit of land and um, kind of put it out to all the students, like, who wants to do it? I think there was, like, 12 people really excited, went down there gung-ho, everyone just no plan, no organisation, <laughs> just went for it. And, um, yeah, within three weeks there was four people down there. <laughs> and I think the thing that then we got, the ducks came and ate everything twice, which was a bit rough. What do ducks <laughs> eat? Because, oh, they must everything. be everything. Right. <laughs> they're wood ducks. They're wood, uh, wood yeah. ducks, yeah. yeah. They're, like, oh. actually geese rather than exactly. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, they, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Damn. they oh, they destroyed it. I mean, now they have there's ducklings at Burnley, so now yeah. I love them again. But yeah. for a good six months, I really hated them. Yeah. Um, but then we had this. We had so it was four of us doing the garden, and three of us, which was actually Pat, Kirsty, and I, were just trying to do it all. Uh-huh. Um, and it was a lot of work with full time uni, and um, we yeah. were kind of like and fighting the ducks and all that sort of stuff. And then the <laughs> other guy doing a Callum, he just focused on one crop. He picked yeah. cauliflower, mm-hmm. and they were his babies, and. It was the best crop we got. He took. Mm. He was so proud of it. He put all his mm. time into it, and he really could. He did what he could manage, which was one crop. And so this mm. season we're doing it again, and now there's 15 people, which is very exciting. Great. And everyone's picked one crop, and we're doing this kind of combination of like self-organization, where you have to be in charge of your own crop, mm. um, and it, to try and foster people's pride in their own crop and, and make them put their time in. So yeah. do you choose the ducks over onto someone else's crop? <laughs> <laughs> net unfortunately <laughs> although hopefully they're distracted with their babies or something I don't know. <laughs> we'll get in there with it but um yeah what's the your d- crop uh, mine's wombok oh. which i'm not even sure if it's gonna grow that well in this season but we'll see we'll like see. yeah i might have to shade it so it doesn't bolt but uh, i really want to make lots of kimchi ah. so yeah that's why i'm growing wombok uh-huh. yeah so, yeah so it's, so there's the highs and lows of like you know getting in touch with the seasons right and Especially being at in this touch, time of year. Being in yeah. touch with nature has yeah. pros and cons. <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. when I think about being growing food and being a market gardener, yeah. I mean, obviously, like, I, I don't want to speak for people who've been in the industry and been doing it for years and years because mm. they know what yeah. it's like and I, I don't want to minimise the struggle. But for me, having a job where I can not only be in control of what I'm doing but do something different, solve problems. Like you're saying with Paul from Days Walk, like he's mm. always scheming and coming up with things and that's yeah. really engaging for your yeah. brain. Like that's so different to other jobs. And, I mean, I know I can stand up for 16 hours. I've been a chef. Like I've got the stamina <laughs> yeah. and I just want to focus that in on something that really makes me passionate. I think, yeah, yeah I mean, I don't want to be like money doesn't matter because we've all got to eat and live. Yeah. But I think I've chosen to make the priority not not the the salary but the experience and the yeah. lifestyle yeah awesome. <laughs> so we'll talk to me yeah, in well, i mean in a, in a period <laughs> when like <laughs> we'll see how you go but yeah. in a, you know in a time when like you know so many jobs are so many tears of abstraction away from things that kind of matter then it mm. you know it seems like you're making a, a a choice to do something where it's there's no ambiguity if you're doing something right and doing something good and uh i guess that must be part of the appeal yeah yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 almost too simple. It's like, oh, <laughs> glad, I wish I figured this out years ago. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, Burnley and the Market Garden. Uh, do, you, do you want to talk? Tell us a little bit if you know what's happening there at the moment and how people can get involved in the course. Sure. Well. Um First of all, the positive thing is that there are these incredible students like Charlotte and Pat and Kirsty and Callum who, who just got mentioned who, on the food production side, are just taking it so seriously. That's what's just inspiring me. That it's, mm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with just the good old-fashioned recreational food gardening. In fact, we should need to promote that more and more. But mm. also with my other master's students, just really 
wanting to do the active growing or facilitate this and I think it's because a lot of young people don't want to just have a career being a barista, not that there's anything wrong with that of course, mm. but just saying well this, we now are outpriced, we're, we're out of the property market, there's, we want to live in the city, there's something we have to do, we want to do something that's actually positive, but yeah. okay. So having said all that, um, the qualification that the guys are doing is being um, disestablished is the term that the university uses, which is really tragic. Mm. Um, and because it was an, it's an anomaly within the university, so it's an associate degree, which means a two-year qualification, and it, it, it's, its pedigree is as an old diploma that goes right back to that first intake in 1891. And I think, um, despite the fact that I think Charlotte, it's... You guys will enjoy it, and it's interesting. And it's the most amazing <laughs> course. I just, it's incredible. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I is think there any chance of? So, so the campus is keeping on going. The campus is going, and there's a very strong Masters of Urban Horticulture program. There's okay. lots of graduate certificates, um, graduate certificate in garden design, graduate certificate um, in boriculture, for example, which is a very, you know, because trees and the need for an urban forest has become such a hot topic issue. Lots of people yeah. doing that course, but this classic old diploma we'll call it is no more this is charlotte's year the last big intake of doing the second year and then there'll be a few students finishing over the next two years so it really seems untimely i mean yeah because it feels like i you know there was that like you know late 20th century Mm. turn away from it horticulture being fashionable but um it seems i you know it seems like the cultural backlash is or well i or it's more a positive movement than that but yeah, wanting to get our hands dirty and mm. um, and and be productive in a horticultural sense seem, seems to be something that you know, and you're probably a representative of this, Charlotte. Like, seems to be something which mm. fashion's a terrible word to use, but like it it seems a bit more grounded than that, literally. Um, but it seems like yeah, it's yeah. Sad, sad to hear that. It is sad. What it's are you sad. thinking, Melbourne Uni? <laughs> yeah, get your act together. People yeah. want to do the course as well. I have people asking me all the time, I want to do your course. I'm like, sorry. It's just made mm. it quite inaccessible to people who don't already have a degree, which I think for a lot of people who mm. want to do horticulture, they probably don't have another degree. Yeah. Like, or probably they might not. They might, but, yeah, to make but they it they want to do it. They want to yeah. do it. Yeah. Let them do it. Yeah, let them do it. <laughs> yeah. And Come on, Melbourne Uni. And there's so, horticulture has so many, like, different focuses, you know. It's not just growing food. That's right. And yeah, it's um, – look, I really hope that uh, – undergraduate horticulture uh, as a full course will come back to that campus one day Mm. because it does have the gardens it does have that field station so it's not it is a very academic course is heavy emphasis on science on the sort of research context of the stuff we do but to be able to access that land is really important and i think um yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful it will come back one day. That's an yeah. incredible resource, isn't it? It's like yeah. right there, and it's it's got it's got the land, it's it's got the history. It, it's like it's not going anywhere. It's not like no. they're going to, as you said, they can't build on it necessarily or anything like that. So, so Charlotte, if, can I put you on the spot and say what's the the next big thing you need for farm raiser? So, if we've got people out listening, there's someone out there listening. Um, if you could name one thing what would you need next is it land is it money is it um i guess it's it's money (laughs) (laughs) i just say it's true we're going for grants and we're crowdfunding and that's that's our that's our phase now we're in that sort of like beginning phase trying to get get all our um sort of so we can put a a link up yeah we can do that for um, sure on the show notes page crowdfunding that'd be awesome i I see you you uh want to buy a tractor (laughs) 
Yes, we do. Yes, so. we do. And my uh, my sister's partner put the money in for the crowdfunding to name it. So ah. that's really exciting. Yeah, I'm a, <laughs> so. I'm a tiny bit worried, but it should be. Okay. <laughs> well, he hasn't someone actually named from, it. Uh, someone face. from John He's Deere so out there. Yeah. <laughs> someone from John Deere out there who'd like to lend you one on a fairly permanent basis, you'd be happy to hear from them. <laughs> oh, the, yeah. the, the glyphosate memorial tractor. <laughs> <laughs> Or someone who's got a lazy tractor yeah, just yeah. sitting in their garage yeah. they're not using. Yeah, not. <laughs> Needs running, you know, yeah. going well. We've been talking with Dr Chris Williams and Charlotte Bartlett-Wine. Did I say your surname right? I wasn't sure no. that it was Wynn. Oh, it's no. Wynn, but I just keep forgetting to tell you. It's oh, fine. I'm sorry. Well, at least like we got mine, there in the so end. that's good. <laughs> um, thanks so much for coming in and talking about mm. your projects. And, um, yeah, it's, it's genuinely fascinating, the, like, horticulture... Like you're saying, it's it's science as well as it's hands-on, and um, that's right. Yeah, it's a shame to hear that the that the associate degree is wrapping up, but there's still the masters, and there's still your project. Did you? Hey, when we we're off air, you guys were, and we, there was something about the the pick my project, pick my project on, oh. on the cart there, and you guys have both got them. On Peter Go and for Charlotte. Yeah. Tell us about yours. Yeah. So, oh, well, yeah, Pick My Project yeah. is the um, the grant scheme from the government where you vote for projects in your local area. And we have one for Farmraiser. It's called the Waratah Urban Farm. And um, it's for us to set up the entire farm. It would, If we got this grant, it would just mean we could start the farm right. as soon as. Oh, so this isn't start. crowdfunding. You just go there and vote. You yeah. vote, yeah. Okay. And you can pick three projects. Um, yep, and there's, you've got two projects, I believe. I do you? have two projects. That um, makes three. That makes three. Perfect. All right. However, they, you, I think you have to pick them in your area. So that's the kind of catch there. Mm. Yeah. I think it's but, like, what, a 5K radius Yeah, five, 5K radius, right. yeah, so from what, your workplace or What postcodes do we need to put in? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> put in your post favourite postcode. <laughs> where your favourite <laughs> projects are. Um, so there's the uh, Waratah... Urban Farm. Urban Farm. Belfield. Um, and I'll just quickly plug ours as well, Cultivating Communities. We've got a the Fitzroy Food Forest, and that's going to be a, a food forest on the outside of our community garden on the public housing estate in Fitzroy. And our other one is in Carlton, and it's a kitchen equipment library. Mm. So it means you can borrow... You know, those kind of like um, food processors and pasta oh. makers and ice cream makers and stuff like that. Kind of like a tool library, but for kitchen equipment. So uh-huh. cool. I'm so into that. <laughs> you can vote for a show. I thought about getting an ice cream maker, but it's no like need, that no would need. be terrible. Yeah, yeah, borrowing it. And also, where would you put perfect. it, right? Yeah. 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 You don't want ice cream, that much ice cream no, all the time. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm, yeah, I support all three. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.